Today's Tan Talk, entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. Where can you find the best tasting authentic Caribbean food in Tampa Bay? It's all at Island Vibes Caribbean Restaurant in downtown Largo. Island Vibes has delicious jerk chicken, fresh seafood, Caribbean soup, salads, sandwiches, and more. Don't miss happy hour from 4 p.m. to close and live entertainment on Friday nights. Check out Island Vibes Caribbean Restaurant at 351 West Bay Drive in Largo or call 727-240-4420. To check out their amazing Caribbean menu, visit Sweet islandvibes.com perhaps the most classic season ever in trans am racing 1970 had it all each of detroit's big three made huge commitments to the series the over two liter pony cars were racing only amongst themselves all the great american drivers were racing in the series donahue jones fulmer posey revson and texas's own jim hall maker and team alignments changed for 1970 with penske switching to the amc javelin car Motors program came about with my relationship with uh, Bill McNeely, who at that point was uh, head of marketing for American Motors. Uh, they thought that this would be a great way to show off their cars. Uh, we were looking for, uh, as an opportunity to take the expertise because we were not a factory team at that point with Chevrolet. And with American Motors willing to commit, it gave us the opportunity to grow our base. So it was one of the really the great experiences that I had taking really a car that was an underdog and, and being making it into a winner. Penske's driver lineup. Mark Donahue, of course, and Peter Revson. Chevrolet supported Jim Hall with a new model Camaro. Chrysler plunged into the Trans Am series with two Plymouth Barracudas for Gurney and Savage, and a Dodge Challenger piloted by Sam Posey. Jerry Titus, still running his own team Firebirds, focused only on his own racing effort in 1970. Bud Moore fielded a strong two-car effort for Parnelli Jones and George Vollmer, despite Ford's cutting racing budgets by three quarters. Competition was intense, and the lengths the teams would go to to get that extra advantage were remarkable. I remember uh, how the teams could outfox our technical inspectors almost every day of the week. Uh, and some of it would be was as comical as the Dickens in retrospect. But uh, the, the leader coming in, for example, and for his last fuel stop and the crew member dumping a 10-gallon can full of lead shot into the gasoline tank so the car would weigh enough at the end of the series. Well, we had our car, uh, which we were very proud of and had worked uh, long and hard on, as everybody else had. Uh, but our car was pretty illegal. I mean, so was everybody else's. But ours had spent maybe a little too much time in the acid bath. The 1970 championship battle was a classic. Jones and Fulmer dominated the early part of the season. Early on, the Javelins had teething problems, but by mid-season, the renowned Penske preparation paid off. In fact, only two races on the entire year were not won by Bud Moore or Roger Penske-prepared machines. Milt Minter would take Donnybrook, and Vic Elford, driving for Jim Hall and the Camaro, would take Watkins Glen. Donahue would win at Brinchhampton, Road America, and Mont Tremblant. With a second place at Watkins Glen, Donahue would keep AMC's title hopes alive. It was not to be for AMC, however, as Ford clinched the title at Seattle. With Parnelli's first place and Fulmer's fourth, 
The manufacturer's title went to Ford. It's third in the transaction. Hi, this is Sam Posey, formerly a racing driver and today a commentator for NBC Sports covering Formula One. And you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google TanTalk1340.com, and you can see us live. That is live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, CallStreamMotorsports.com. If you've missed any of our past shows, you can go to our podcast page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, on our website, CallStreamMotorsports.com, and you can listen to all 315-plus shows. Right, Bobby? That's right. Good evening. Would you like to uh, share our social media? Absolutely. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, no, not yet. LinkedIn and YouTube. <laughs> That's coming. That's coming. coming. Uh, at Nostalgic Radio and Cars and at NRC On Air. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Now, we got a pretty good show for you tonight. we got a very special guest coming on a little bit later. But first, we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's going on this weekend. This weekend, what do we have? In Lakeland, the annual Lake Mirror Classic Auto festival or it's actually a concourse so uh and we were we were we were tentatively scheduled to have a car there but somehow there was a communication problem so they didn't quite work out but nonetheless we will be there in full force talking and networking and looking at all the really cool cars and taking lots of pictures and trying to do some potential interviews with uh, a lot of really cool car people there now i will tell you that this is a really really spectacular event it's right downtown in lakeland and it's around the lake and like in the past couple of years they've had uh some exhibits with uh, vintage wooden boats. There might be a number of those there. There was also some amphi cars, and they actually drive into the little lake there and uh, buzz around a little bit so people get to see what it was like back in the late 50s, early 60s when people were actually driving around with car boats. I guess you would call them amp- They're called amphi cars, and they were made in Germany at the time, and they got two little propellers in. And unfortunately, many of them rusted out, but many of them were saved, and they're highly prized collectibles today, I might add. The wooden boats... Obviously, very, very collectible, whether you have an old gar boat or a Chris Craft or, or as in the case of our good friend in Mount Dora, he's got, I can't remember what that boat's called. Shame on me. Do you remember, Bobby? We were out in that boat a couple oh, weeks ago. Oh, the lion? Sea the lion? Li- the sea lion. That's yeah. it. Very good. Very good. See, when you're young, you don't lose your memory. When you get old and you're borderline Alzheimer. Now, Alan is sitting out in the studio. I didn't. I didn't do that. That just happened that as just he walked happened. in the okay. door. Okay. Well, uh, Alan is uh, an ad nostalgic reading cars contributor, and uh, he uh, he's shaking his head out there. But now, uh, in in Alan's uh, honor here, I brought in Classic Motorsports magazine, and that's our good friends uh, Tim Sutter and those guys over in uh, Daytona, Classic Motorsports and Grassroots Motorsports, and they will be there exhibiting their rare classic cars and a number of their magazines. And because uh, you will see some pretty spectacular cars. But since Alan's into foreign cars, like I'm into foreign cars. Yeah, Robert, thanks for having me on, man. I tell you, you guys have a great show. Uh, you're very famous down there in that Clearwater area. <laughs> <laughs> now Alan's really, no, Alan just fell out of the chair now. Just, so, at any rate, very good, Bobby. That's good, 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 good. But anyway, so you will see some amazing cars. And our good friends over there at Heacock Insurance uh, are the big sponsors of that particular event. Our good friends from Fields BMW, Gary Gordon and them, they'll be over there. Uh, Pete Doris, Pete, he's going to get mad now. But anyway, Pete Dorguzzi. Don't make me come up. I'm sorry, i got to call you back. Uh, Pete will be over there from Haycock Insurance. And uh, usually there's some pretty well-known car guys there. For example, uh, Wayne Cherry, which is a former head designer for Cadillac Division for General Motors. He'll be there. Jack Talnack, who is former head designer for Lincoln Motor Car Company, or Lincoln division. It's called Lincoln Motor Car Company now today, I guess. Our good friend Chris Dunn from Lincoln Land will be over there because he's going to have one of his Lincolns over there. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Schmidt from NPD will be there. Corky Coker will be there. Uh, Barry McGuire will probably be there. Wayne Carini may be there. Uh, you know, you can have a lot of top-notch people running around there. So 
It is really, really nicely laid out. You'll have everything from, you know, Ford Mustangs to BMW Isettas to Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Duesenbergs, Isotto Franchitis, just all kinds of really, really cool cars. Of course, Porsches and maybe an MG or two. What do you think, Alan? <laughs> At least one. At least one. Well, yeah, if we have to push it over there. And a Volvo, a Jaguar, you know, things like that. So there will be some pretty cool cars, obviously, and it's a lot of fun. And the the vintage car uh, collection is really cool, you know, the the pre-war stuff, you know, the big, heavy American classics. And, of course, the 50s cars, you're going to see some really nice, you know, obviously 57 Chevrolets, you're going to have some uh, 57 Thunderbirds, and you're going to have some 53 Cadillac Eldorado, Ritz convertibles, beautiful cars like that. Mercedes 300 SLs will be there. Just some really cool stuff. Obviously, a share of Rolls Royces and Bentleys and just neat stuff. Now, the cool thing is, is downtown. Downtown, they have the streets blocked off, and that's where your more domesticated cars will be. Your Camaros, your Mustangs, your Torinos, your Chevelles, your 442s, you know, your Firebirds, you know, all that kind of cool stuff will be down there. And occasionally the Corvette or two. And, uh, you know, a lot of replica cars, a lot of foreign cars, again. So it's pretty cool, and there'll be a lot of vendors. So it's a lot of fun for everybody. And best of all, it's free and open to the public, so everybody's welcome. And it's all day Sunday, I believe. This Sunday, right, Bobby, if I got that correct? Actually, it's a Friday-Saturday-Sunday deal. Friday night, they do a little cruise and a dinner thing. Saturday, they got some stuff planned, but the concourse is actually on Sunday. Now, next weekend in downtown Safety Harbor, and I know Alan's going to be there, is the and we may push something there. Um, right at the moment, it's running, but it's the British Car Show, the Tampa Bay British Car Show, and it's sponsored by the Austin Healy Club. Our good friend Walt out of uh, out of Sarasota is going to be there with the Austin Healy Club, and he's got a beautiful, vintage, correct, original, unrestored, unmolested, legit Austin Healy 100 LM. Well, it may not be a Le Mans car, but it is. It could be. I don't remember. But it's a 104, but it's the high-performance one, so it's a pretty cool piece. And that's early 50s is when they introduced the big Healy. In fact, we had Jerry Coker on our show not too long ago, earlier this year. Lay-down windshield, he said. Lay-down windshield, yeah. All the 100s had lay-down windshields, which is pretty cool. So it's kind of cool because it has kind of a classic 30s, 40s look with the lay-down windshield, but it's got the really sleek look. And again, in the 50s, the Healy was a pretty slick-looking car. The Jag 120 was pretty cool, but the Healy was just really neat. And uh, so uh, the British Car Show is downtown Safety Harbor next week. And uh, I think the Buick Pontiac Old Show is in Auburndale next week. And if you want to find out more about where these cool car shows are and where they're going to take place, be sure and check out floridacarshows.com. Right? Did I say that right, Bobby? That is right. Yeah, our good friend Tara out of Orlando. And I didn't really realize how many events took place in central Florida. We're west Florida. That's central Florida, Orlando. There's a lot of car shows. So be sure and check out floridacarshows.com. Okay, that's where you can find out where the majority of the car shows around the whole state of Florida are. So I think I covered everything. Um, Or or to be... Exactly, specific. FLACarshows.com is the web address. for. Yeah, and then I think at the end of the month is the big Hilton Head car show. This past weekend was another car show or concourse and and just outside of Atlanta, Road Atlanta, actually, at Brazelton. That's the first annual one they've they've had. uh, Our good friends with HSR is putting on the Savannah Historics. That's the end of the month. SEMA is the first part of November. And then, basically, you just got a ton of car shows. The uh, St. Pete Yacht Club car show. The 6th, I think, and then you've got Festivals of Speeds coming up. You've got Carlisle Vents is doing their show over in Lakeland. You've got uh, Zephyr Hills. You've got, uh, what else we got going on? we got uh, the Turkey Rod Run. Then we got Festivals of Speed again. Wow, be sure and check out our calendar page on GolfStreamMotorsports.com. Now, if you're into cool stuff, I'm going to give my good friend Jeff. If you're into all that really cool mid-century stuff, uh, you know, furniture and little knickknacks out of the out of the 50s and 60s, the atomic age, as they called it, or early, late 50s, early 60s TV shows like The Munsters and Adam's Family and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Even Sea Hunt for Alan out there. We're all Lloyd Bridges fans back in the day. Go check out the Cool Shop. That's the store that when you walk in there, you can't help but say, Cool. The Cool Shop. Bobby, what's the phone number there for Jeff and those guys? The phone number for The Cool Shop is 727-201-9489. How about that? One more time, Jeff. Bobby. 727-201-9489, and they are located at 9265 Seminole Boulevard in Seminole, Florida. Bobby, you got something queued up on the uh, on the turn up table there? It's a round doohickey, yeah. That's <laughs> a round doohickey. <laughs> We do. Okay, so this is a little thing that uh, you've heard the term, let's drop the needle in the groove. And since a couple weeks ago, big shout out, gonna drop it yeah, a big shout out to our friend Jim Shue for 
on Saturdays. When's the show? 11 to 1. Going 11 Coastal. To one. Yes, Going Coastal. And uh, thanks, Rick Sesson, for the good shout-out this week. Uh, 1 to 4 on the Tantalk Radio Network on Mondays. Now, this is a band that was in concert at uh, Florida Downs here, or Tampa Downs. Yeah. A couple weeks ago. Blue Oyster Cult. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Where can you find the best tasting authentic Caribbean food in Tampa Bay? It's all at Island Vibes Caribbean Restaurant in downtown Largo. Island Vibes has delicious jerk chicken, fresh seafood, Caribbean soup, salads, sandwiches, and more. Don't miss happy hour from 4 p.m. to close and live entertainment on Friday nights. Check out Island Vibes Caribbean Restaurant at 351 West Bay Drive in Largo or call 727-240-4420. To check out their amazing Caribbean menu, visit SweetIslandVibes.com. Hello, Florida. I'm Ken Squire, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We're back, and yes, you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I was just showing Alan. I uh, stepped outside for a second here. I've got the Classic Motorsports book on, and of course, the the title on here shows a real pretty Series One E-Type Jag, which would be '61 to '67. It says "Driving the Dream Jags." And uh, so there's a whole story on the Series 1 Jags, the Series 1 and a half Jags, the Series 2 Jags, the Series 3 Jags, which you got to admit, even today, here it is, you know, 60, 70, well, almost 70, some odd years later, 60 some odd years later, and the E-Type Jag is still a, just a stunning car. In fact, I think it was Enzo Ferrari, Alan, that said that it's the most beautiful car he'd ever seen, and here's a guy who designs Ferraris that were designed by Carrosseria di Turin. Uh, you know, that did the Super Ligero bodies like the Aston Martin was one of them, but the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis and stuff like that. Beautiful, beautiful car. But the E-Type Jag is absolutely gorgeous. I always liked them. Really did. But anyway, in here there's an article on barn finds and a guy stumbling across a couple of cars. And since Alan's a Volvo guy, there's a picture of a early, early Volvo 1800. Um, what else are we going to talk about a little bit? Okay, so we had the, uh, we played you a little music from Blue Arsa Colt because they were one of the feature bands along with Kansas and along with Journey over at the uh, Centennial Concert over in Oldsmar here a couple weeks ago. And of course, again, big shout out to our good friend Jim Shu, who does the radio show, music radio show, every Saturday between 11 and 1 p.m. No, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's when he does it. <laughs> and uh, you know what? Jim plays some cool music, just like we play a lot of songs, too. Like the first song we played from Blue Oyster Cult, which was Mistress of what, Bobby? Uh, Godzilla. No, no. 
Oh, did we play Godzilla? Oh, yeah, we did. Oh, okay. I thought we played the other one. But anyway, um, so my screw-up, his screw-up, somebody screwed up. But anyway, neither here nor there. But uh, <laughs> so, you know, but a lot of times what we do is we play kind of like the flip side of a lot of the 45s or some of the songs that are elsewhere on the album, which is kind of cool because we don't want to play a lot of the music that you typically hear that's kind of, you know, played too commercially. We like to, because a lot, a lot of these artists have a lot of other really cool songs on their uh on their uh, albums that were equally as good, but just never got the airtime. Anyway, so let's see. I'm looking at Classic Motorsports. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know another event that's next week, and I really want to go to it, and I talk about it every year, and I forget to go to it. And I was invited again this year, and that is the annual Moonshine Festival car show slash doohickey in Dawsonville, Georgia. And that's a three-day event. It's a Friday, Saturday Sunday deal, and they got some pretty cool cars. Bobby, you got some on the turn-up table for us again? Got some Journey, the other band we heard. Oh, yeah, I got some Journey. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back, and then we're going to come back with our special guest for the evening, and you'll really enjoy our next guest, our special guest, and the topic that we'll be talking about. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We'll be back. This is Bob Varshu. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is probably very familiar to you guys if you watch TV a lot, especially in the automotive shows. He is the lead announcer for Fox NASCAR, and you'll see him as a uh, auction analyst. On Velocity and Discovery, he's also an avid vintage car racer and an MG collector. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Mike Joy. Mike, are you there? I am, Robert. Thank you. How are you doing? Well, thanks for uh, joining us this evening. Uh, why don't you give us a little background on Mike Joy? I mean, everybody sees you on TV. They see you doing the NASCAR announcements. They see you doing the Bear Jackson coverage. And uh, so tell us a little bit about Mike Joy. Well, I grew up in New England. Um, and at that time, which is the late 60s, early 70s, that I came of age, um, cars had an awful lot to do, both with uh, social standing, mobility, freedom, and they were fun. I mean, owning a car was very aspirational for many, many of America's teenagers, especially all of us who were outside of the largest cities. So when you turn 16 in Connecticut, the way the law worked there, you started driver education, and as soon as you could finish the 30 hours of classroom and the, the six hours of on-the-road instruction and, and then doing some driving with, with your parents or uh, or other folks, you went and got your license. And, you know, a lot of us had, even in high school, uh, had cars and part-time jobs to either pay for them or to, uh, you know, keep them running and, and on the road. And, you know, on a, on a Friday or a Saturday night, if you didn't have a date, you'd get together with your buddies and you'd hang around and take out spark plugs and clean them or do whatever, you know, whatever you needed or didn't need to do. Um, and, and a lot of those cars were, were very personalized uh, to the owner's taste. And from there, um, went to college and carefully pared down colleges to those that had uh, automotive or sports car clubs and active rally or autocross programs and um, ended up 
sitting on the hillsides at Lime Rock covering races for the college radio station, broadcasting other sports, which is kind of where I found my niche and my home, uh, which which led to the career uh, that I have today. So I think uh, among all your of your listeners and, and people that are really have a lifelong interest in cars, I'm very lucky that I get to be a salaried tourist and uh, and enjoy um, the automotive hobby and and sport full time. Super. Now, when you were young, was your dad into cars? Your friends? I mean, who kind of got you into cars? My dad enjoyed cars quite a bit. We, uh, you know, as I was growing up, we were a two driver family. My mom, and my dad. My dad had a car to go to work. My mom had a station wagon, and my dad had a sports car. Um, and then he had a, a Model A Ford that he kind of kind of tinkered with and enjoyed um, enjoyed getting that back running and on the road. So the, the car hobby was part of my my early growing up. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a kind of a lifelong a lifelong hobby, uh, if you will. Okay, you mentioned Lime Rock, so I'm assuming that Lime Rock was probably one of the first, which is up there in Connecticut, which is beautiful, just outside of Sharon. Was that was probably the first racetrack you went to? Uh, no, uh, a group of us in high school who all enjoyed cars. Uh, we decided we were going to the U.S. Road Racing Championship event on on a weekend, and it happened to be the race was down in Bridgehampton on Long Island. So we left on uh, left on a Saturday, late Saturday night, drove down from Hartford down to New York City and out the island, and we're wandering around in the fog at five in the morning. Can't find the racetrack because there's no signage for it out there. Here comes an ambulance with lights on, and we figured, wow, somebody must have snuck on the track and crashed. That's where the ambulance is going. Let's uh, let's follow it. And and we did. We followed the ambulance. They were going for coffee. But when they got to the restaurant, they were kind enough to tell us how to get to the racetrack. And, you know, that's what we did. Went there, uh, parked right up against the fence, and, you know, watched uh, Jerry Grant win the race in, in Dan Gurney's Lola and watched a whole bunch of, you know, the greatest race drivers in America compete. And went into the pits, the paddock afterwards, looked at the cars, and I was like, wow, we got to find a way to be a part of this. Wow. Two questions. What was your first yeah. car? What was your first sports car? Uh, my first car, I wanted a sports car. And my dad thought that was a bad choice for a 16-year-old with no driving experience. He was probably right. Uh, my first car was a 60 Chevy Impala convertible, or 283 automatic, and... This would have been in 1967. So it was then a seven-year-old car. cost about $700. Um, or I think we figured out about 8000 in today's money. So, you know, it's a pretty neat car, car to have. And, and in the high school, my, I don't know, five or six really good friends uh, just happened that we all drove Chevrolets. And uh, everything from Corvettes to, to Biscayne's at the time. And... My first sports car, I guess it would depend on your definition, because the car I got after the, after that, once I was in college, was a little Mini Cooper S, a, you know, a little tiny British one. Uh, it was a real little snot rocket. Even though it had four seats, it was very definitely had all the attributes of a sports car. And then after that, um, I found a dealer that was advertising what they thought was a Fiat, because they just didn't know any better. And it was priced like a Fiat, but it was an Alpha Duetto Spider. And I talked my dad into uh, financing that, saying that, you know, what an opportunity to be able to buy an Alpha for Fiat money. Uh, and it was. Unfortunately, the parts for it were priced like Alpha parts, not like Fiat parts. So uh, it was a little tough to keep little tough to keep on the road and, and to get parts those days, much less, uh, much less advice. But that was the first engine that I ever rebuilt because my younger brother borrowed it one day and blew the head gasket out of it. So here's this... Uh, four-cylinder, dual-overhead cam, all-aluminum engine with Weber carburetors. And that was the first thing that I had. I hadn't even rebuilt a lawnmower engine, but we had to rebuild that one and uh, got it together and never had a problem with it. So I guess we did okay. Did okay. Well, actually, the little Alpha Motors, those little uh, twin cams, they're pretty bulletproof, aren't they? they uh, it was a very, very powerful for its size. It was only uh, 1,600 cc's, but it was well over 100 horsepower. And the bottom end was terrific but uh, you know at the time they, they were known to have some uh, cooling and cooling and head gasket issues and the italian rubber parts back then hoses and, and belts and things like that were pretty much crap and they were hard to get and 
you know, today, if, I, if I'm, and I, it's funny, I just, I had an Alpha S4 up until uh, this spring and sold it, but anything I wanted for that car to work on it or restore it, I could find with about four clicks on the internet. And that certainly was not the case back in 1970 when, uh, when I had the first one. When did you get into MGs? There was a, there were a couple of guys in college that had them. There was one fellow in particular, John Heller, uh, who was from, he was the head of the sports car club. And he had a dark green 66 MGB Roadster. And then a very good friend, Tom Klamaski, had an MGB GT. And they were just cars that I always loved, but at, at that time couldn't afford one, much less uh, you know afford, afford to keep it running. Because those cars were built to last about 60 or 70,000 miles. And then in the Northeast, one of two things would happen. Either something expensively mechanical would reach the end of its service life, or if the car had been driven for one or two winters on the salt-encrusted roads of New England, everything from about 12 inches to the ground would rust through. That included rocker panels, trunk floors, things like that. So even today, up in the Northeast, there's a whole lot of engines, transmissions, rear ends, hoods, which were aluminum and didn't rust, trunk lids, and tops. But there's very little lower body parts uh, or even cars with complete lower bodies up there anymore. The salt just ravaged uh, those cars. They were not well uh, rust-proofed, and they, they just, just couldn't stand it. I was reading that uh, you got you and your son kind of work collectively together on uh, on on a couple of MGs and you, and this weekend or not this weekend but next weekend actually over here in Safety Harbor we have the annual British Tampa Bay British Car Show so uh, and and I myself have a little MGB GT at the moment right now as well but uh, it, they're they're just and I, and and I've had a number of British for, sports cars over the years my fa- my first car was an MK3 3000 a Healy and um, but British cars inherently have you know, mechanical issues and things of that, electronic, electrical issues and stuff like that. But over the years, like you said, they've gotten better. And really, they're, the, the B is an underrated car. I think for the money, it's a great little sports car. It's economical. And like you said, with a few clicks on the Internet, you can find just about – you can source just about any part you need for one of those cars and have a great car that's uh, not overly expensive. It's, it's a fantastic car. And until the Mazda Miata came along, the MGB was the best-selling sports car of all time. Really? Um, the, yeah, uh, with over half a million souls. Now, I've had I ha- I've had big Heelys, and I've I had a TR6, and the big Heelys and Triumphs are much more difficult to restore because they're body on frame construction. So you build the frame, you build the suspension, the chassis parts, put the engine and transmission in it. Then you have to get all the body parts together, and then you have to start getting things to match up and get aligned. That's really difficult. I mean, it almost takes professional level of restoration to be able to do that and do it well. Otherwise, you start at one spot and you start hanging body panels, and by the time you get around to where you started, you know, you've got half-inch gaps to make things fit. With an MGB uh, or its smaller uh, cousin, the Austin Healy Sprite and MG Midget, those are all unit body cars, which means that the body and frame are of one piece and made out of folded sheet metal. Uh, the MGB does have a separate different cross member in the front, uh, the midget does not. So when you're building one of those, you're building it from a welded up piece, and it's all of a piece. So it's a pretty easy car to to restore in that sense. Now, and not the case back then, but now, uh, thanks to companies like Moss Motors, uh, which is in California and Virginia, and Victoria British in the Midwest, um, I could almost build an MGB or a midget out of the catalog. You can buy almost every part you need um, to build and certainly to restore one of those cars. And if there's anything you need, there's a great resource. And, and I've got a lot of uh, websites or forums that I belong to for the various collector cars doing my research for the auctions. But one of the very best is mgexp.com, which is uh, the MG experience. And between the collective wisdom of the people on there, uh, you can learn how to restore or repair just about anything with these cars. And between the collective, the collections that everybody has and accumulation of parts, um, you can find, buy, sell, trade, just about anything you need. Uh, the other day I sent a, 
I, I shipped some marker lights from Michigan, and uh, I shipped uh, convertible top bows out to, to Colorado and some headlight buckets somewhere else. And, you know, it's just these cars are like potato chips because they're not expensive. Uh, people tend to have one, and then they have one for parts, and then they get parts from their friends. And, and it's real easy, and it's communal. It really it really becomes a, a very communal hobby that way, and they're not expensive cars. Um, a good driver quality chrome bumper MGB is still seven to ten, twelve thousand dollars, and a, a full-on show car uh, struggles to break twenty grand, and that's that's very very low numbers in the collector car hobby. Well, yeah, and not to mention it's a uh, it, it gets a, it gets the family involved too, doesn't it? Yeah, um, you know, my son enjoys working on it. He has he has a new car to drive, which he enjoys more. It's a six-speed, not a four-speed like the MG. He's got disc brakes all around and a turbocharger, which you know, which these cars don't have. But uh, we did a, a 72 midget last year, and I forget where we were going, but I, I drove my pickup, and he drove the, the midget, and we stopped at a Wendy's for lunch, parked the car, and then parked the truck several spaces away. And more people came up and asked him about that little MG. He got more attention out of that than anything else he's ever driven. And he's had the opportunity to drive some pretty special cars. <laughs> people just love it. It's, just, it's cute. It's a convertible. It's, you know, wind in your hair makes a lot of noise, doesn't go that fast, but has fun doing it. That's what it's all about, exactly. Sure. Now, tell us yep. a little bit about your uh, vintage racing uh, uh um, efforts now, because I know you're involved in that, and you've won a number of sure. awards, and you've had some really cool cars um, that you've been <laughs> been behind. Yeah, um, my passion from the late '60s has been the Trans Am series, and this was a, a professional series that Sports Car Club of America created for small sedans and pony cars, uh, beginning with the Ford Mustangs. So the glory days of the series were 1966 through about 1973. And those are the years that are celebrated by the historic Trans Am group. And the people that lead the group are very well acquainted with and steeped in the history of the series. Uh, we've befriended a lot of the drivers who competed in period, because once Detroit got involved, every company that made that type of car in 1970, which was the high watermark for the series, had a factory team. AMC, Roger Penske ran a team of Javelins for Mark Donahue and Peter Revson. Over at Ford, uh, Stock Car Hall of Famer Bud Moore had Mustangs for Parnelly Jones and George Fulmer. Uh, Jim Hall of Chaparral fame had a two-car factory Chevy Camaro team for himself and Ed Leslie. Dan Gurney, the All-American hero, has a Plymouth team for Dan and Sweet Savage. Uh, Firebird Pontiac had a Firebird factory team for magazine editor Jerry Titus, and Dodge had uh, the Dodge Challenger team for uh, Indy Rookie of the Year Sam Posey, uh, who was paired up with Tony Adamowitz, uh, a great, great, great driver who just passed away yesterday. So, you know, here's all these factory teams and all of the greatest stars in racing. You know, the only place you could go to see uh, – Jim Hall and Parnelly Jones and Dan Gurney and Mark Donahue, other than the Trans Am series, was the Indy 500. So these were the best of the best. And all of these cars, I think there's one or two exceptions, plus the cars of the independent drivers, the privateers uh, that also ran the series, most all of these cars have now been restored uh, and repaired to their original specifications. Not to today's racing specs, but just as they were. And the rules are, are very, very strictly enforced to make sure that, that these cars are racing just as they would have in period. About the only thing that's different are, you know, we use modern fuel in the engines, and, and the tires are much better than what they had to race with back then. In fact, today's street tires are better than what they had to race with back then. But, you know, people get to see these cars uh, half a dozen times a year, always at Monterey at Laguna Seca during car week out there. And then we'll run a few other races a year at different places. Uh, this year we went to Lime Rock Labor Day and Watkins Glen the week after, uh, you know, among a few other tracks. So uh, the glory days of Trans Am are back. And those of us who get to drive these cars and the fellows who own them are just really proud and really happy to be stewards of history. And instead of having the cars sit and gather dust in some museum, they're out there on the track making a glorious noise and running close together fender and fender uh, just as they did back in the day. 
That's super. That is. And and I go to I was just at Monterey uh, a couple months ago and and Trans Am is still one of my favorites, especially when they bring them downtown for the concourse on the Ave on Tuesday, you know, they just shut down the whole sure. street and they let them run down. That's great. Yep. Um, and we did that we did that at Watkins Glen Friday. We went down the hill from the Glen into the town for for the uh, Grand Prix festival and were the were the featured uh, featured show down there and got to run three laps of the old Watkins Glen Grand Prix course that was in use in 1947 to 49. So Big, big thrill for all of our group, to be sure. Wow, great. Now, what was one of the most spectacular cars you got a chance to drive? Because I know you're, you, you, you're lucky. You get to, you know, because of your your uh, media status, you get to drive a whole bunch of different cars. So which which one kind of stands out? Which is one that's uh, like a real man's man's car? <laughs> well, there's a couple. Um, there's a couple. And, you know, I don't I don't go around begging rides. I know there are fellows who are, are authors and, and TV people that do. If I've got a feature that I can do on a car and, and the owner would, would like to let me take a couple laps in it or run it in an event, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm honored and happy to do that. But um, I've driven the car in which Mark Donahue won six races in 1970 and George Fulmer won the Trans Am Championship in 72. That's a, an AMC Javelin. Um, I've driven the Sam Posey Dodge that, that Sam raced the third in the series with a very underfunded a Dodge team in, in 1972. Um, I've, I've raced a, a Bill Elliott Thunderbird, and you know, in historic stock car, and, um, and I've driven the Parnelli Jones Mustang, one of the Budmore Mustangs that was Parnelli's car. And boy, you really had to to thrash and throw that thing around to get it to corner, and uh, you know, no power steering and no power brakes. And those races were three and a half hours long, and you really had to manhandle those cars. So I'd say that's that's probably the one that. that Mostly got my respect. Do you, uh, in your in your spare time, when I, when you do get a chance to a vintage race, um, do you kind of like cross over? Do you drive sports cars once in a while? You've driven the Transom. Have you ever had a chance to drive one of the, I mean, in my, my opinion, the purest form of racing, Can-Am cars? Um, you know, a, a friend of mine who, who runs uh, Historic Trans-Am, Tony Hart, mm-hmm. just bought a former Can-Am Lola. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty awesome car. And he says the combination of the high horsepower and the short wheelbase makes it an intense handful and the lightweight. You know, here's a car with six or 700 horsepower, and it probably doesn't weigh 1,400 pounds. And uh, it's uh, it's not got a lot of tire by today's standards. So, yes, it would be a lot of fun to drive one of those, but but um, haven't had the chance. The one, the one I did drive and did not care for at all, was the later generation of Trans Am and IMSA GTO cars from the 80s. Okay. Because now aerodynamics had, had really come into play, and these were really pure downforce cars. So uh, Jack Rouse was doing a play day for sponsors and media, and, and I got invited to it. And before I hopped into his Whistler Mustang, uh, Dorsey Schrader gave me some advice. He said, all right, you get out of turn seven. He said, if you take that corner at 60 miles an hour, the tires are doing all the work. It's all mechanical grip. And if you go through there at 70 miles an hour, it's all downforce. The air is doing all the work, blowing the car down to the road. And, of course, I had to ask, well, what if I'm doing 65? You crash. Because you don't have enough of either. You don't have, an, you know, it's, you're too fast for the tires, and you're not creating enough downforce. So you wreck. And I said, that's enough for me. I'm getting back in the old Trans Am cars that, that don't require, don't have any downforce, so you can't depend on it, and, uh, and we have a blast with them. Which tracks um, do you get to race? Do you race mostly? Because you're out of uh, North Carolina, right? So do you run, let's Correct. say, like Road Atlanta? Do you run Sebring, Roving Road, uh, VRI? I mean, which tracks do you like to kind of hang out on? Um, when I raced SCCA, I did run all, most all those tracks. Okay. But um, I grew up in the Northeast and, and spent, oh, 40-some years up there. So tracks I've won on include Lime Rock, Watkins Glen, and Pocono, and uh, New Hampshire Motor Speedway. So naturally, I guess any race car driver would tell you that, that where you've won is certainly tracks that, uh, that you like. And those are all a lot of fun. So is Elkhart Lake. Road America is a tremendous place to race. And Coda, the Formula One circuit in Austin, Texas, is just, I mean, it's a marvel. It is a very, very tough track to learn and master. We went down there at uh, in 2014 with the Trans Am cars, and then later that year I watched the Grand Prix and found out all of the all of the areas that were paved that really weren't quite part of the course, 
but that you had to you had to drive through to get a pass flat. So it'll be it'll be fun to go back knowing what we know now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, and from a technical standpoint, Coda is a very difficult track. It's very difficult. I, uh, there's there's a diabolical set of S's. You know, in most tracks where there's a set of S's, you can you can develop a rhythm and maintain or pick up a little speed. But this is a set of in increasingly tighter S's, and you need to scrub off speed as you go, as you go through. And you can't just straighten them out and curb hop them. Um, there are some really, really technical sections to that track uh, to, to make up a fast lap there. And in we were there a week, never, never really mastered it. Let's jump over to announcing. We uh, A few years back, we had one of your mentors on the show, or one of your contemporaries. We had Ken Squire on. And uh, I think you worked with him in the early days, right? Back in uh, in broadcasting and motorsports broadcasting. In uh, the of course, Ken had a track up in Vermont, still does Thunder Road, mm-hmm. up in very very Vermont, and was the lead announcer for MRN Radio and for CBS. And when I started in 1970 in a small track in Massachusetts, they would have Ken come down and announce the big shows. So we got a chance to work together on public address very early. And and yeah, it, it's certainly fair to say that you know that he was the best mentor that I ever had, and created some opportunities and opened some doors uh, for me to and including uh, joining the CBS broadcast team in '83. Then in uh, in 19 at the end of '97, uh, CBS moved Ken to the host position and moved me from the pits into the broadcast booth into his role. Um, something that you know, was a great honor for me, and I was that I've been very, very proud to follow in his footsteps. Absolutely. So you follow NASCAR quite a bit. I mean, how much preparation do you have to do for those uh, for those events? Well, it's constant, and the job is the job of preparing for them has become that much harder. Just as the hobby of repairing cars, old cars, has become easier because of the internet. Uh, fans have such access to information. Um, both from the official and unofficial websites and forums. And, you know, thanks to Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram, now often directly from the athletes themselves. So for us to keep up is a, is a seven-day-a-week proposition of, of being on the Internet and then supplementing that with, with uh, phone calls, shop visits, and, you know, person-to-person communication. So... To, to know more than the fan knows going into a telecast is is a lot more difficult than it's ever been. But that's what we have to do. That's part of it. And being able to, to tell those stories and relate them to the people who've not been glued to the Internet all week long, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's harder than ever to, to have a leg up on, on what the fans already know when the telecast starts. Do you focus more on because you you kind of like call the race, don't you? It's almost like you do play by plays there on, on NASCAR. That that job has evolved, and back you know when I was learning for Ken from Ken, TV employed a radio type call, and it really was play by play, lap by lap. But now TV has evolved, um, and the biggest gains that have been real time computerized scoring on the screen. You know we used to have to. I mean, back in the CBS days in the 80s and 90s, we would get a rundown every 10 laps from the scoring stand. And going into an outer break, somebody would have to physically type the names, car numbers, and positions onto the screen. And, and you felt you'd done a good job if you had a, a leaderboard that was correct with five names on it. Now we've got a continuous scrolling ticker of all 40 cars in the field that will tell you not only the driver's name, number, and position, but also will show you how far he is behind the leader, what the interval is, and whether it's increasing or decreasing. And all that is done without human input. That's all computer-generated. We, we program it. but uh, And that information is also available on the Internet. So even during the race, the fan has tools uh, to, to enhance the viewing experience far more than ever. So as a result, you don't have to do a traditional play-by-play. You don't have to say, there's car number one passing car number two. The viewer can see that. You don't, don't tell them what he can see. Predict what may happen coming up so the viewer can watch for it and then analyze 
what does happen as far as why and what impact it has on the rest of the race. And I've got three of, of the very, very best analysts in racing with, with Daryl Walter, Jeff Gordon, and Larry McReynolds. So uh, we occasionally get into differences of opinion, but that's okay. Everybody's got an opinion, and, and we don't have to agree. But we do have to uh, set the viewer up for how to watch the race, what, what to look for, and then make sure that at the end of the telecast, that, that the fan who's dedicated their, their three or four hours to the TV set has a firm grasp of what happened to their favorite driver and has a couple of stories they can tell the next morning at the water cooler that uh, that they didn't have when they turned the TV set on. Yep, that's pretty much it. Now, we got a few couple of minutes left real quick. I think, is Barrett Jackson this weekend? Because you're basically uh, on staff there and you're on stage yep. and you're calling. Yep. Uh, so I think uh, Las Vegas this weekend, right? So tell us a little bit about what you got going on there. Yeah, I'm sitting in an airport in Boston uh, waiting to get on a flight and uh, go out there and We'll do uh, we'll shoot features and do pre-production tomorrow, and then we're on Velocity Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 11 a.m. to 7 or 8 p.m. every day, with the exception of two hours on Discovery on Saturday. Otherwise, it's all on all the coverage is on Velocity. Okay, and are you you're, are you pretty active on Twitter and everything like that, and Facebook and all that? Do, do, so, if people want to find out more about you, how would they go about doing it, Mike? Uh, my Twitter handle is at MikeJoy500. Okay, super. And uh, that, that's, our, that's our primary means of, of uh, communicating with the fans in real time. We have a couple of people on the telecast. Rick DeBrule is one, and they, they tweet during the telecast. I think that's more because Rick doesn't have enough to do. Uh, <laughs> Steve Mignante and I up there on the booth, and we're going to be joined by Mike Wheeler from uh, Wheeler Dealers. Oh, great. Uh, and, and, you know, we're down there looking at the cars up close and trying to give you detail about them. So that, that pretty much precludes tweeting during the telecast. Gotcha. Well, Mike, I want, to, I want to thank you very much for taking some time out and hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And I wish you the best of luck. And again, I want to thank my special guest this evening, Mike Joy, lead announcer for NASCAR. And you can see him this weekend if you watch the Bear Jackson auction in Las Vegas. Mike, you take care. Have a safe flight. Look forward to having you back on the show again sometime. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Be sure and check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. If you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out our podcast, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget to tell your friends, tune in every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. Don't forget, this week, Let's see, we've got a big car show going on this weekend. Right, Bobby? The Lake Mirror Classic in Lakeland. Hope to see everybody there. And next weekend, the British Car Show in downtown Safety Harbor. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen.